0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. One thing I didn't make any mention of last episode, as we looked at how most of the biblical book of Genesis and Exodus exist beyond the grasp of history, is dates, or indeed, any numbers at all. That's because I was saving that whole discussion for this episode, where we'll start our discussion, quite fittingly, in the book of Numbers, which, despite the dull-sounding title, actually has some of my favorite stories in the five books of Moses. Well we aren't actually quite to Numbers yet, we left off about halfway through Exodus, and I really feel like I should be at least summarizing the biblical story, because even though it sits at the heart of Western culture, it's far less common for people to actually read through the whole thing than it used to be and we're starting to get into the weedy books that people are more likely to skip. So last time we finished with Moses parting the Red Sea, which actually wasn't the Red Sea, and in our minds was actually Charlton Heston, not Moses. The Israelites, plus a bunch of other people tagging along, escape into the wilderness. Then, like a Disney princess, Moses breaks out in song. Exodus chapter 15, sometimes called the Song of the Sea, has the distinction of being linguistically the most archaic segment in all of scripture, and because of that, many believe it was a song composed far earlier than the compositions in the rest of Exodus. While it is possible that someone in a later period was emulating archaic styles for rhetorical effect, It's also quite likely that this song really is what it is presented as, a song from at least the period before the monarchy, if not even older than that. That doesn't mean that Moses necessarily wrote this song or sang it on this occasion. But if we don't discount it as a complete fraud, then we can conclude that the Exodus narrative was at least believed to be true among Hebrew-speaking peoples, from a very early period. In fact, we have on this show read quite a lot of praise poetry from the various gods of the ancient Near East, and in many ways this isn't too terribly different from what we have read there. Now, I'm not going to be reading the whole Bible. I expect to quote it even less often than I would otherwise quote ancient sources that I love to read on this show, just because I don't want this to turn into a very different kind of podcast. But I am going to read this in full in the NASB translation, both because this is the Oldest Stories podcast, and this is perhaps the oldest portion of the Bible, and also because it has some pointers to some of the thorny issues of the emergence of Israel as a faith. It begins, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. That is, chariot riders, not horse riders directly. There were no cavalry. And while the translation makes this a bit ambiguous, I'm told that the Hebrew is more clear on this particular point. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now that the Lord stuff usually shows up in your Bible as all capital letters here. And when you see it written like this, it is the translator opting not to write the name of God, which is the four Hebrew letters yod, He, Wa, and He pronounced most often as Yahweh or Latinized as Jehovah. Saying the Lord evokes a certain cultural feeling in the modern world, but Moses did not say the Lord here in this song, and the original Hebrew text of this song did not say the Lord. It says Yahweh. And if we replace Lord with the name of the God, look at how much more it sounds like the prayers of their neighbors— Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Anyway, the song continues. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has thrown into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Now, the preceding chapter never once names the body of water that they cross. It's only here in this song that the Red Sea is mentioned and the exact reading of this name is heavily contested, especially since the place names indicated in the narrative about where they cross indicate a place much further north. It could be that this is a poeticism. It could be that some translator over the centuries crossed some wires. It could be that what is meant is Sea of Reeds. Or it could be that whoever wrote this song genuinely thought that the people crossed the Red Sea but that's not too important. The waters cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, Yahweh, destroys the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send out your burning anger, and it consumes them like chaff. Seriously, I considered reading out this hymn, replacing all the Yahweh with Shamash or Marduk or Ninurta, just to see if anyone would notice the difference. The most ancient text in the Bible at least borrows the forms of hymns to other gods. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up the flowing waters stood up like a heap the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea the enemy said i will pursue i will overtake i will divide the spoils i shall be satisfied against them i will draw my sword my hand will destroy them you blew your wind the sea covered them they sank like lead in the mighty waters Now, there is a whole theme here about the sky god versus the water god. Key here is that the word translated as sea is the word yam, which is the name of a Canaanite sea god, much as how Shamash is both the name of the sun god and the name for the sun itself. Some see in this a retelling of the myth of Baal versus yam, which we discussed back in the episode called the Baal Cycle. That said, it could just be a limitation of the language, Hebrew being essentially a dialect of the Canaanite languages. Who is like you among the gods, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And now we get to a subject that has caused endless consternation in modern times. The idea that early Hebrews conceived of Yahweh as a national or tribal god, one among many. The great theological innovation being that Yahweh was a jealous god, and even though there were other gods uh, potentially available to be worshipped, only he should be worshipped by the people of Israel because of their special covenant. Wrestling with or denying this possibility is a pretty major theological issue in certain circles, but we're going to see the matter come up over and over again as an historical issue. I'm mostly going to avoid the theological side of things as much as possible, except to note that there are many interesting and consistent conservative theses that preserve much of the traditional understanding of god, while still acknowledging the tendency of ancient Israel to hold polytheist beliefs. And of all the historical issues in the Old Testament that can challenge someone's faith, really this should definitely not be among them. You reached out with your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your faithfulness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were terrified. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have despaired. And let's just pause this right here to remember the scene this is set in. Moses is standing on the far bank of the sea. The waters have just come crashing down behind him, and Pharaoh's soldiers may still be screaming and struggling against the waves. This was the very moment of salvation, and yet it wasn't posted on Twitter for the world to see. There was no CNN news van with a satellite uplink to show the story to the world. In the moment when Moses is supposedly singing this song, the people, being the foreign people, have not heard. Anguish has not yet gripped Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are not yet terrified. No inhabitant of Canaan has yet despaired because they have no idea what's happening on the opposite side of the Sinai Peninsula. This verse is a little bit anachronistic for the setting. Maybe Moses sang that the enemies of Israel will be terrified in the future, and the song just got changed as the future became the past, and people kept singing it, and they're like, oh yeah, this already happened. Or maybe this verse was added in later, during the conquest or judges' periods or maybe the whole song was written much later, it's far from uncommon for things like speeches in ancient historical works to be completely fabricated and inserted into the mouths of earlier historical figures. This song as a whole is still likely extremely ancient, but there is a window of many centuries, from the 13th to 9th centuries BCE, which could potentially be consistent with the date of composition for this song. And then it concludes by talking more about the enemies. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, Yahweh, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Yahweh, which you have made as your dwelling. The sanctuary, Yahweh, which your hands have established. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. There is no part of the Bible that could not be examined ever deeper for hours on end. And indeed, some of my favorite podcasts spend hours doing just that. But I will resist the pull of further analysis and continue the story. So after they sing and dance for a bit, they start wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness wanderings are completely beyond history. We know that there were nomadic people out in the wilderness, but we know nothing about them unless they interact with one of the major literate empires in some way. But actually, there is one teeny tiny scrap of evidence here, and it is super unclear, but the Egyptians may have written something about Yahweh worshippers a bit after the year 1400 BCE. Pharaoh Amenhotep III ordered an inscription written at a temple in a site called Amara, listing the peoples who live all around Egypt that they know about. It lists Libyans and Nubians and various peoples, but most interesting for us is that included in the list is a group called the Shasu of Yahweh. Now, the Shasu was the Egyptian name for various pastoral groups from the Near East. Sometimes it gets translated as Bedouin, but it's not a hundred percent match right there. So we have this nomadic group who are somehow of Yahweh. And linguistically, there are indicators which suggest that Yahweh was believed, by the Egyptians at least, to be maybe a place name, not a divine name. Now, this fact alone has been used to both prove and disprove the entire exodus, when in fact it does neither. Some will posit that since Yahweh here is probably a place name, and as a second possibility the name of a major tribal chief, it means that there were as yet no Yahweh worshippers anywhere, and that this tribe simply got confused later on and reached back into dim history to invent Yahweh worship later. This single fact, however, proves nothing of the sort for a number of reasons, but most prominently the fact that over in Asher, one of the most significant cities of the ancient Near East, we see that a god, a city, and a mountain have the exact same name. Asher is the god of the city of Asher, and he lives on and is the mountain Asher within that city, and there's a whole bunch of people who have his name as part of their name. Similarly, there is no reason at all to imagine that a bunch of Yahweh worshippers would be unable to apply the god's name to whatever region they happen to be inhabiting at the moment. What's more, there's no reason to exclude the possibility that the Egyptians were simply confused for a million possible reasons, probably having relatively little direct contact with this particular extremely minor tribe. On the other hand, some will claim that it proves the Exodus has already happened at the biblically conventional date of 1447 BCE, since, oh look here, we see a bunch of Yahweh tribesmen listed in an Egyptian geography as being somewhere in the deserts of modern-day Jordan. Except that even in the Bible itself, we have mention of a surprising amount of Yahweh worshippers who never went into Egypt and would presumably still be in the Levant wandering around in this time. From the enigmatic Melchizedek, and presumably his descendants at this point, to just a bit later the Syrian Balaam, son of Beor, to all non-covenantal descendants of Abraham, That's Ishmael, Esau, Lot's children, and quite possibly more that we don't hear about. For any of these groups to be the Shasu of Yahweh would be biblically and archaeologically consistent with the main line of Israel still being in bondage. But that mention of 1447 gets us to sort of the theme of today's episode, that the Bible is absolutely terrible with numbers. Now, some follow biblical chronology as precisely as possible, and there was that famous calculation that the entire universe was created on October 22nd, 4004 BCE, at around 6 p.m. This, by the way, means that the Mesopotamian city of Eridu was founded about 1,400 years before the universe was created, which is our first indicator that something is wrong. But just to focus our chronology a bit more, there is a famous line which tells us that Solomon's temple was built 480 years after the Exodus, and the Exodus occurred after 400 years in bondage. Now we'll get to this later, but there are some kings of Israel and Judah who we can date pretty precisely because of their interactions with Assyria and Babylon. If we follow the king's lists of the Bible backwards, taking it literally, we get to King Solomon taking the throne around 470 BCE. Then he started the temple after like three years, and then 480 years before that would be 1447 BCE. Now, literalists do argue even about the specifics of that date, how the Hebrew and solar calendars interact with each other, and other things to push that literal date back and forth a bit. But the fundamental issue is that this date is completely absurd. It puts the Exodus at a point in time when Egypt controlled Canaan pretty completely. This puts David and Solomon at a time when we know the political situation in Canaan quite well and don't see any trace of them. This is putting biblical literalism above evidence, not parallel to it. No, the Exodus, whatever of it is historical, fits generally in the reign of Ramses II of Egypt. This is when the cities of Pi Ramses was built, and it is a generation after this that the Egyptians lose control of most of Canaan, making way for other peoples to come and occupy it. Though the Pharaoh of the Exodus is never named in the Bible, we know that Ramses himself, for all that he wrote down, never allowed things to be written which made his reign look bad, which... That's not just Ramses, that's pretty much all ancient Near Eastern kings. And we know that the son of Ramses, Merneptah, hated Israel enough that when he attacked Canaan in the last decade of the 1200s, he reserved a higher level of destruction for them than the surrounding Canaanite peoples. But that gets us into the time of the judges, and we left our narrative on the edge of the sea, having just parted the waters. After this point, they wander into the desert since Canaan is off limits to them, being still militarily occupied by the Egyptians at the height of their power. This is the point in the story where they are led by a pillar of smoke in the day and a pillar of fire at night. This is when they are fed with manna and given water from the stones. For the secular historian, none of these stories need to be literally true. These are people who should be just fine surviving in the wilderness, especially since plundering the riches of Egypt would certainly have included a good bit of livestock, quite possibly the very livestock they were put in charge of as slave herdsmen. But of course, for a person of faith, there's nothing here which is impossible for God. Either way, though, these miracles all happen well outside the eyes of history. There neither is, nor is expected to be, any archaeological residue from a mobile pillar of flame, nor even a bunch of nomads wandering around, living mostly indistinguishably from other herdsmen. At one point in the journey, they fight the people of Amalek, They attribute this victory to God, which is fine because every military chronicle of the ancient Near East attributes the victories and defeats to the relevant gods of the region. We have no idea who the Amalekites were, probably because they weren't super significant and may have gone by another name in the writings of the Egyptians and others. Then they have some internal political organization, and then they all camp out at the base of Mount Sinai. Famously, while Charlton Heston is grabbing some lightning-carved tablets, the people below build a golden calf and start to worship it. And this, curiously enough, points to something maybe historical. You see, the God of the Bible goes by two names in the Bible. We already discussed the name Yahweh, but he's also called El, or in the plural, Elohim. Now, why his name can be plural is a more complicated mess than we have time for. But of note is that the word El literally means God in the Western Semitic languages. Elohim, the plural, means God's plural, or God singular at the same time. Again, a big mess there. But we know from Canaanite texts that the Canaanites worshipped a god called El, who was seen as the father and senior god of all the other gods, not unlike An in Mesopotamian tradition, a fairly remote, older figure associated with the highest heavens. Now, the relationship between the Canaanite El and the Biblical El is hotly debated, but this incident, as well as similar ones later on, point to something fascinating. In the Biblical narrative, the people as a general mob demand an idol, and Aaron, brother of Moses, apparently has no problem building them one. And though this story gets preached as an example of the people of Israel going astray from their God, That really doesn't seem to be the case. You see, they aren't breaking necessarily rule number one of the big stone tablet, but rule number two. They really seem to believe that the calf is an appropriate representation of their god. You see, in the Canaanite religion, which was held generally with some modifications among all Western Semitic people at the time, the bull was the symbol of the god El there is no reason to think that they were, as some claim, worshipping some Egyptian god. They thought that Yahweh was El, and indeed the most famous prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah, has a name which literally means Yahweh is El. And in their cultural background, the appropriate symbol for El was the bull. But here in this story, Moses is introducing a cultural prohibition against religious idols, one which will become one of the major archaeological markers of Israelite settlement when they finally start building towns in Canaan. And we can see that as Western Semitic people, the popular religion while wandering in the wilderness is fundamentally a Western Semitic polytheism, but with a certain religious faction trying to pull them towards a set of religious reforms. Also among these reforms, quite famously, is a prohibition on pork, which we also see archaeologically much later on, with a noticeable lack of pig bones around Israelite settlements, when they are somewhat common in Canaanite settlements. This is a religious reform which the Bible itself tells us involved the Reform faction slaughtering large numbers of what we might call the polytheist or traditionalist faction. Or perhaps we could say that the Yahweh faction enacted religiously motivated violence against the Canaanite faction. Either way, the specifics of the story on Mount Sinai are of course impossible to evaluate historically, But the general point that the nomadic people of Israel experienced an iconoclastic and wide-ranging religious reform, which nevertheless was constantly compromising with mainstream Canaanite faith, is attested in both archaeology and the Bible quite strongly. Next up in the story are a whole bunch of laws and the building of the tabernacle, All of Leviticus, then, is a religious manual for rules to follow and procedures to carry out for various things. Now, if this was a Mesopotamian priest's manual, I would honestly pause and try to find at least an episode, or if not more, just reading through it and getting a feel for how religious life was practiced in ancient times. But of all the controversial books of the Bible, Leviticus retains enough modern relevance that I would be dipping my toe in more than I really want. So since there isn't direct historical narrative being added, we're going to skip Leviticus completely, just like I suspect most Bible readers do today. Then we get to Numbers 1, that is, the book of Numbers, chapter 1 which, after all that Levitical stuff, scares most people off the chapter completely. Which is a shame, because Numbers has some great stories. But the famous Numbers that begin the book of Numbers, well, this is one of the biggest historical issues in the entire Old Testament. You see, years being inexact is uh, pretty excusable we've already seen and will continue to see that Mesopotamian records are not always exact when estimating long spans of time, and they have whole libraries of written records to help them. The writers in the Bible are often relying on oral tradition for this really old stuff. But in Numbers chapter 1, after two years in the wilderness... Moses takes a census of the 12 tribes of Israel, counting just the number of men able to go to war. So, perhaps age 20 to maybe 40 or 50-ish, or maybe just 20 and above. By this count, every one of these tribes is the size of the greatest armies of antiquity, ranging from 30,000 to 70,000 military men. And every one of these men was military ready. This is a nomadic herder society and the great strength of these societies is that nearly 100% of the fighting age men would be expected to fight in battles. This is one reason why low population density nomads could often compete against settled societies with substantially larger populations since the nature of settled agriculture means that only a fraction of the men can be called away from the fields without causing a famine. The sum total, which the chapter handily spells out for us, is just north of 600,000 fighting men. This number is insane. It is utter madness. This can be nothing but either fantasy or scribal error. This is just the fighting men, in quantity over ten times the largest army ancient Egypt ever mustered. This many fighting men, even with an equipment and training disadvantage, which we should not necessarily assume they had, could have overwhelmed not just the militaries of Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, the Hittites, and Mitanni, each at their height combined, but should have been able to completely overwhelm anything they came across with ease. The Mongol armies, which pushed west, were never more than maybe hundred fifty to 200,000 men. The Roman army, covering the entire empire at its peak in 135 CE, was just shy of 400,000 men. The U.S. army in 2020 has a bit under... Half a million people, total, scattered across the world. Not just the fighters, everybody even vaguely related to the U.S. Army. And that's just the men. It isn't much of a stretch to first double that number for the equivalent women, and then add a bit to get the young and the old. And pretty quickly, you're around 2 million total people all in the same general area because they're traveling in formation around the tabernacle at this point. The city of Rome, at the height of the Roman Empire, was about half that and had to import food from Egypt constantly to avoid starvation. And they weren't even in the middle of a desert. They ate the entire Italian peninsula, plus a bunch of the crops of Egypt, plus a bunch of the crops of the Carthage area, the province of Africa, modern-day Tunisia. Now, I don't want to harp on the logistics too much, since, of course, these guys are being fed by a miraculous substance that magically appears each day. But once they enter Canaan, the manna dries up they would have descended upon Canaan like an unstoppable locust plague. Not only should there have been no group capable of resisting them, but the Israelites should have been forced to eat the Canaanites just to stave off starvation. Estimates for the population of Canaan, all of Canaan, in the Late Bronze Age are something like 250,000 total people, based on archaeological estimates. Could be more, could be less, it's not 600,000 people, it's not 2 million people. Once things get better a few centuries into the Iron Age, that number has increased a bit, maybe even doubled as the climate has improved. But I haven't seen any estimate even close to a million people. And that's with agriculture. Without it, the carrying capacity of the land is so much less. Now what I can compare this to is the Epic of Gilgamesh. Near the beginning of the story, it claims that Gilgamesh was a certain height, which estimates of ancient units of measurement would put it about 16 feet tall. Now if you want to claim that Gilgamesh was 16 feet tall because of some sort of divine blood, that's fine. The problem is, None of the rest of the story actually works if you imagine him to be 16 feet tall. Suddenly, you imagine this, and he can't enter the buildings in Uruk. He can't have intercourse with regular women. The armies of Kish wouldn't be confused because they would see him behind the walls. The palaces and the ziggurats around him would crumble under his heels, The storyteller has thrown out an absurd number for mere effect and then proceeded to tell the story as if Gilgamesh was merely a strong and tall man, not literally 16 feet high. Similarly, the biblical tale involves Israel sometimes winning, sometimes losing, and sometimes avoiding places because the enemy is too strong for them. If they had 600,000 fighting men, the logistics would collapse, and they would all starve. But before they got to that point, they could defeat any army anywhere in the ancient world, and I mean pretty much until the early modern period. I'm perfectly fine with an all-powerful god granting manna, parting waters, sending snakes to murder people who don't look at Moses' bronze snake. But when you have a nation of two million wandering around the desert being intimidated by literally anyone else, the story just doesn't work anymore on a narrative or historical level. So where does that leave us historically speaking? Pretty much all of the wandering that they did in the desert is plausible, for a certain definition of plausible. We can't track a nomadic group in the desert during the end of the Bronze Age. We can't do that for the Israelites, we can't do that for anyone. There weren't 2 million Israelites out in the desert. There were not 600,000 Israelites in the desert. 60,000 total Israelites among the 12 tribes, including the women and children, would be a pretty significant nation. Half that, again, is total people. Now, that would be a noticeable force capable of entering Canaan even a bit before the Bronze Age collapse as Egyptian control is starting to slip maybe 5,000 to 30,000 total people among all 12 tribes makes sense for the campaigns described in Joshua and for the time period in general. But that's for the next episode. Overall, we can know at our most skeptical that there were at least tribes of people associated with Yahweh somewhere in the desert sometime in the Late Bronze Age. At our most literal, we absolutely have to drop that 600,000 number for something well less than a tenth of that. But the narrative beats as a whole are all plausible even if you strip out the miracles and replace them with vaguely naturalistic hand waves. Between that, history simply can't answer too many more questions about the wilderness wandering period. Next time, though, We're going to play with exciting, actually verifiable archaeology as we kill off Moses and enter the conquests of Joshua. So join us next time for a decided lack of genocide, a bunch of war narratives, and the utter destruction of Israel and her seed for all of history. Thank you for listening.